Hi, everyone. This is NBC10 Boston's question and answer series about the war in Ukraine. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Harvard Katsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for joining us every week. Thank, Thank you. you. So I just want to start by talking about the biggest headline that's coming out this morning, that the House passed last night a $40 billion package uh, to, pro to provide Ukraine with military and humanitarian aid. And that comes after President Biden on Monday was uh, signed a bill to streamline the process and the U.S. Um, announced more sanctions, like cutting off Western advertising from Russia's three biggest television stations. So I wanted to ask you guys what these uh, moves, are. obviously these moves are a show of commitment to the continuing to support Ukraine, right? But how, uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on the significance of these uh, policies and how, I guess, the U.S. is stacking up in our support uh, when compared with other countries uh, that, are, that are also doing the same? So, um, Ola, do you want to start with that? Sure, I can start with that. Um, I think it's very significant, definitely, because it shows the kind of long-term commitment to Ukraine as an independent state, but also to winning this war. And I think when we talk about you know any kind of possibilities of ending the war, right now we all are beginning to realize that the only real possibility of this war ending is if Ukraine wins, if Putin is defeated in Ukraine. And that means that you know the Ukrainian territory is uh, freed in its in its uh, you know legal uh, borders, and um, and that you know essentially Putin suffers a defeat, um, and so that will require a lot of support, of course, because um, you know the Ukrainian economy is basically collapsing because of uh, you know the the producers' inability to export. Uh, a lot of people have left the country, you know, and it's just not safe to continue uh, manufacturing anything that, you know, that has been manufactured, especially in the East, where, you know, the kind of the, in, the in, uh, um, industry there is largely heavy industry uh, or industry related to mining, to producing iron, uh, you know, uh, uh, delivering ore and so on. And so um, in, in such a situation, this package is really vital for Ukraine. Uh, we have seen already that um, uh, Ukrainian troops were able to take back uh, an important piece of Ukrainian territory uh, north and east of Kharkiv, right? The second largest Ukrainian city in the northeast. Um, the Ukrainians are very successful using the, um, the military aid in, in uh, truly keeping the Russian troops at bay. They're not able to, to make the kind of advances that they wished or, or needed to do before May 9th. Um, and so I think in terms of continuing the kind of support that Ukraine has received and perhaps ramping up the delivery of uh, heavy artillery and um, you know artillery that would be able to uh, interfere with the Russian kind of long-range missile strikes Etc. So this kind of aid is extremely important. Uh, so far, nothing else compares to uh, the generosity of this support for Ukraine, uh, for, uh, you know, from other partners. Although uh, United Kingdom, for example, also has pledged um, 1.6 billion pounds recently 
uh, toward Ukraine and the European Union uh, provides all kinds of various packages to Ukraine as well. Great, Maya, Pablo? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really strong sign of support and it's necessary, particularly the efficiency mechanism of it, being able to streamline the process. Um, I think it does signal that, you know, regardless of how long the war itself um, continues on, Ukraine is going to need humanitarian support and funds to rebuild for quite a while after the, the nature of the destruction that the Russian military um, unleashed on on Ukrainian cities and towns. So, you know, I think this is absolutely key. It also kind of consolidates um, U.S. politics around this issue because we can see in over the last um, few weeks that Republicans have been veering away from the kind of, you know, full-throated support of the Ukrainians. And that is a dangerous situation to be in. This isn't just about, it's, it's not at all about two sides. It's about one aggressor and one victim that's successfully fighting off the aggressor. Um, so I think having the Congress pass something like this kind of solidifies the U.S. opinion on this as well, even while there are, of course, Republicans who would sort of try to rail against it. Pablo? Yeah, I agree, and I echo what, what Oleg and Maya have said. I think it's very important. It shows the commitment of, of what really is the strongest uh, leader, really, in, in, in the Western world, the commitment to Ukraine. And, and again, it, to me, it also evidences the, the shift in thinking that perhaps is going on across the United States and Europe. Uh, and this idea that, you know, the, the war is there to be won to a great extent, and this could be turned into a probably the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin, and this is really an opportunity as well. And I think the West is starting to see this as an opportunity to reassert his position and to really weaken a, a state on the Vladimir Putin that is becoming a clear foe of the West and a clear security concern. And, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about Finland and, and Sweden and all these different security calculations that are evolving. So I think it, it really... Uh, it's evidence of the shift in thinking that is happening across the Western, the Western partners. And the idea is this is just not about containing Russia and Ukraine right now, but it is also about possibly really weakening the, uh, the military machine of Vladimir Putin and really weakening a country that is presenting more and more as, as a foe of the United States and the West in general. So I think it's a really important commitment. I agree with Maya as well that the uh, the, the process of streamlining support for, for Ukraine is particularly important because I... I I think we've mentioned this before. The problem at the beginning was that the reaction was quite slow, in my opinion, and it took a little bit, a little while to get going. And I think, to the credit of the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people, I think they've shown that with the right amount of support and, and with the right amount of resources, uh, you know, they can win this war and they can stop the, the the Russian aggression. And I think it's only fair and right that now the West is providing all the help that is needed. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about Finland and Sweden in a little bit. But before we get there, as we're talking about this long term commitment that's sort of being signaled with this with this legislation, there are some growing concerns about potentially reaching, you know, Russia and Ukraine sort of reaching a stalemate um, and Ukraine just becoming sort of a, a long term battlefield and, and continuing to create uncertainty and, you know, sort of turmoil globally and instability globally. And I wanted to know if you guys share those concerns. Uh, Maya, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in a way, the term stalemate almost 
kind of conveys this idea that the two powers at war here are in a similar situation. So I'm not sure it's necessarily the right word to describe this because it, we have to acknowledge the fact that Russia is much weaker than um, you know many military analysts thought. And it, it, a series of bad decisions over the course of this war um, good for the West and good for Ukraine that these were bad decisions. But um, it means that Russia has been a, a loser in all of this. And I think that um, there can be this protracted conflict, particularly in parts of the Donbass. But, um, you know, it's it's going to be very hard for Russia to hold on to any territory that it, it claims to have gained in some way. Um, there's no way that the Ukrainians are going to sign some kind of treaty saying that they're happy to cede this territory to Russia. Um, and there's been a lot of um, examples of kind of the Russian military capturing a town or a city and then having to back away from that, then allowing Ukrainians to retake the city. So um, in a way, it's it's hard to say it's it's truly a stalemate in that sense. For sure, I think there's the possibility of the conflict kind of dragging on in a way. But But I think what we have to kind of acknowledge is that Russia needs to be held to account that it has clearly was behaving and is behaving like a kind of rogue state, that it has egregiously violated international norms. And that has to be the goal of holding Russia to account, um, you know, really punishing it for the war crimes um, and really conveying the idea, not that necessarily both powers can't move forward, but that actually one has really... Um, lost in a way or is losing and and the rest of the world is determined to make sure that that loss is solidified right we could put the word stalemate aside for sure i think the 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 point is that there's concern that it will just continue like you just described maya being or this issue where russia captures a, a, an area and then you know ukraine takes it back it continues to just be this sort of battlefield and i just wonder like how you know, and without coming to a resolution. And I just wonder if you guys are concerned about that happening for like months, maybe even years, like how do we get to sort of the end? What do you think, Ola? Um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine being an active battlefield is, is would be a horrendous situation for Ukraine because while Ukrainian cities and towns are being destroyed, nothing is being destroyed in Russia. Right. We don't see any destruction, you know, being rained on St. Petersburg, Moscow, you know, um, I don't know, any other big Russian city or even the smaller cities and towns closer to Ukraine. So in that way, the, the war has already an asymmetrical um, Im impact on Ukraine. We know that the projections for the Ukrainian economy for this uh, year are, you know, uh, a fall of 45 percent. So imagine that happening here, for example, if the economy fell by 45%, so almost half of all business is wiped out, right? And the, the rest is operating under very different conditions. So in any case, any kind of continuation of this, of this war is a devastating thing for Ukraine. Ukraine currently needs an injection of $5 billion per month just to cover the humanitarian needs. That means, you know, making sure that, you know, people get pensions paid or salaries, some basic provisions, you know, basic services are, are rendered and so on. So it's a very difficult situation for Ukraine. At the same time, uh, people are not willing to surrender 
it's not so much once again the ukrainian people are the problem for putin because he probably could make a deal with the political elite one way or another of, of some sort but the people would not accept it if if it doesn't include freedom for the people and so that's i think that's a very important point here so people are willing to fight until there is a victory and a ukrainian foreign minister yesterday uh, made a statement that um, uh, Ukraine is changing the kind of the goals in this war for itself uh, by expanding kind of the, you know, the overall objective to free all of Ukrainian territory, which includes, of course, the, the, the you know, the, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk people of the republics that have been occupied uh, and controlled by Russia since 2014, as well as the Crimea. So that, I think, definitely shows a certain kind of growth in confidence and, you know, perhaps thanks to the Western support as well. Um, I think the other, the other thing that we need to remember that the kind of military activity that is going on right now is Ukrainian strategy. Ukraine is currently dictating uh, the battlefield experience or the battlefield strategy in general. Why? Because Ukrainian, the Ukrainian troops are very concerned about preserving lives of the soldiers, of the of the fighters, of various battalions, and so if the Ru the Russians, you know, they are bent on taking territory, and they are willing to sacrifice their soldiers, so Ukrainians retreat, kind of, uh, you know, luring them out in a way, and then when they stretch out and become and and basically, you know, are too thinly stretched of, over the over the territory, then they attack again, and by by doing so, they destroy a lot of equipment. Uh, of the Russian army and, of course, a lot, a lot of Russian, you know, soldiers and, and, and force. And the last point I think that is very important that um, the some of the reasons why Russia is failing in this war uh, uh, should be attributed to the corruption, to the deep corruption of the system of the autocratic, authoritarian, dictatorial system that Vladimir Putin has built in Russia. They have been spending. Uh, several times more each year on their military compared to Ukraine. Uh, and yet we see that most of that money was either ineffectively spent or outright stolen. And so the equipment is, you know, not functional at times or very badly functional. Uh, you know, the kind of the same, the same kind of practices that were perpetuated in the army during the Soviet times, namely a lot of violence within the soldiers themselves. Right, kind of that kind of hazing, etc. That was very brutal, you know, suicides, etc. In the Russian army, and especially among the conscripts, have continued, uh, you know, since uh, since Putin took power. And so, of course, all of that makes it makes that army very inefficient. Unfortunately, they still have a lot of people to lose, and unfortunately for for the Russian people, Vladimir Putin is willing to sacrifice a lot of his own soldiers. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree to a great extent. And I think, I, I mean, it's all a matter of, of the asymmetry, right, in, in this in this particular conflict. And if we've learned anything from the last, you know, 70 years of, of conflict is that rarely the odds are with the invading forces, right? So the advantage that was going to be with the invaded, invaded forces to a great extent, primarily because they can hold that and they can buy their time. And invading a country takes a huge amount of resources. And Russia's resources are definitely finite, and we may not see that right now because, but they're, we, in the background, they're expending a lot of amount of their of their reserves, right, just to prop up the the currency, for example, to support the military, 
the sanctions are beginning to bite, and there is an expiration date to the Russian war effort. They cannot keep up this pace and this degree of, of military engagement for much longer. We could see a, a case in which we go back, perhaps, to what was happening in the previous years before the full-out invasion, and we see sort of the, the maintenance of a low-scale conflict, low-intensity conflict raging in certain parts of Ukraine, uh, which I think is not something that, that Vladimir Putin will be particularly happy with, because it would mean just basically a waste of resources, a waste of effort, a waste of time. I don't see how they will sell that as a particular victory, but we may see something like that developing. And I think it's something that perhaps the leadership in Ukraine would take at this particular moment in time, uh, because that would be seen generally as a defeat of, of the Russian uh, military. So I do think there is an expiration there for the Russian war effort. They cannot keep this up for much longer. And this is precisely why the sort of uh, support that Ukraine is receiving from the West in particular is very, very important because that pretty much means that the resources available to the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian war effort are vastly superior to those available to the Russian, uh, to the Russian forces. And there is there's beginning to be a huge asymmetry here in sight. And, and I think that's why Vladimir Putin is particularly interested in having some sort of quick resolution because they have to have some sort of quick resolution. They cannot keep forces indefinitely in Ukraine, as Oleg Riley points out, but it's very hard to see how that would work. Even if there was some sort of deal with the U Ukrainian leadership, we saw that happening. I mean, we've seen that happening in, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, you know, in Afghanistan before that. So we've seen that happening many, many times. This is very, very, very difficult, hugely costly, and there is no way Russia can maintain that particular uh, forces. We could see a low-intensity conflict, right? Something that rages on in, in between the, in the border, perhaps. And 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 I think that's something that perhaps, although would be not ideal, of course, it's better than what's going on right now. And it's perhaps something that both Ukraine, the West, and Russia could perhaps live with. But particularly, that will be definitely a defeat of the Russian military. Uh, and I don't see how they're going to take any more territory than what they've already taken, mainly in, in the Crimea. Um, but yes, I definitely think... Um, I find it very hard that it was going to lead to some sort of perpetual area of, of war, of conflict and instability. I, I don't think that. And I think a lot of the equivalences that have been drawn are with the Middle East, but I think the, the geopolitics of the region are entirely different. Um, the dynamics are entirely different. So I, I don't necessarily see that something like that developing per se. Okay, great. Anything else anyone want to add on that before I move on to Finland and Sweden? Okay. So we are expecting to hear an answer from Finland and Sweden on whether or not they join NATO, which we talked about the significance of last month. Um, we're supposed to be hearing that, I think, in the next this week, in the coming days. So I wonder what you are expecting uh, to come out of that, Pablo. What do you think is going to happen? I think by now it's pretty much evident that both Sweden and Finland are going to ask for, for membership. Um, Today, uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is visiting both Sweden and Finland and is basically giving them assurances. Fin Finland's and Sweden's main concern right now is what happens during the accession process, as it were, right? Because they, they can ask for accession to NATO, but the process can take up to a year, right? So their concern is what happens in that particular year because we're not going to be enjoying the full support of NATO. What happens if we are attacked by Russia, for example, right? So... I think a lot of the Western leaders right now, and this is the turn of Boris Johnson at this particular moment in time, is to go to these countries and reassure them that there, there are certain mechanisms already in place. Uh, there's the 
um, some joint forces that, that work across the UK, Finland, Sweden, uh, and other Northern countries as well. So that the, the structures are already there for cooperation. And I think right now is a moment where uh, Western leaders, the United States has already offered guarantees, Germany has already offered guarantees, and the United Kingdom is now offering guarantees saying, if there was something to happen before, in the in the meantime, was you ask for accession and you get accession to NATO, we'll still give you all the support you need, whatever you need, and basically put in their weight behind Finland and Sweden's uh, accession request. So I expect both of them to to ask for formal accession. Uh, what sort of commitment they will expect and what sort of NATO movements we'll see to both Sweden and Finland remains to be seen. Uh, but I, I would definitely think it, it's it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that will they will ask for accession. I think it's again a pretty much a foregone uh, conclusion that NATO will perhaps will obviously accept their application, but it still has to be some negotiation, some wiggling room, some some arguing about what commitment Finland and Sweden are going to give to NATO, what NATO is going to give in return. But I think we're we're really in the last stages here, and I would expect uh, Sweden and Finland to ask for accession later this week or early next week at the latest. Maya. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Pablo. I think we are looking at, you know, the beginning stages of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Um, already, they're, because they're part of the EU, they are protected by the EU's mutual defense clause. And with the 27 members of the EU, uh, all but five are members of NATO. So there's a big overlap in membership. Um, and I think what what Finland and Sweden will mean in all of this is that both the EU and NATO will be strengthened in terms of security because you have tighter overlap. Finland and Sweden have much to contribute actually in terms of troop numbers and defense spending. And they've already been doing this through the EU for humanitarian operations, um, including military humanitarian operations. So I think um, you know this just makes the EU pillar within NATO even stronger. It also gives the EU more of a capacity to engage in what they call uh, strategic autonomy. So they have more member states um, willing to act uh, militarily, more, uh, not in, in a sort of hands tied way because of historical neutrality, which has been the case with Sweden and Finland. Um, so they are full participants. You know, I think another thing on the horizon is, is Denmark has actually opted out of the EU's common foreign and security policy, particularly in the defense area. And they're actually thinking about getting rid of that opt out, which could um, lead to other things as well in strengthening um, European defense. So I think it's a significant um, move both for the EU and NATO. And I think that is, uh, just as Pablo said, right around the corner that we'll see NATO expansion and it will be unproblematic in terms of accepting them into the alliance. Great, Ola. Um, I, think what, uh, I think what is important to add to this perspective is that um, this could perhaps show the way for Ukrainians in many ways. And Ukraine is already asking why something similar was not offered to Ukraine. Um, in terms of preventing this war, it could have been very effective. In fact, it should have happened back in 2008 when Germany and France blocked the, uh, the membership plan for Ukraine at the meeting, if you remember. And after that, the attack on Georgia happened. And later, 2014, the uh, Russian attack on Ukraine happened. I think a lot of countries now are realizing that neutrality does not offer security, at least not in the way that they thought it would. 
uh, and Ukraine is a prime example of that. Ukraine having given up that third largest nuclear potential in the world and having declared neutrality, as you know, for many, many years, did not achieve security. And so as a result, the kind of the realization is solidifying that the real security can only be offered by banding together and being able to, to defend oneself with the help of, of other allies, of other partners. Um, and so also the other thing that you may remember is that at the beginning of this war, there was a lot of talk about the so-called Finlandization of Ukraine, right? Kind of the, um, uh, the kind of partial um, uh, giving up of uh, the country's sovereignty in that it pledges not to uh, enter into certain, um, you know, foreign affairs uh, negotiations or deals, right? Something that is honestly the sphere of responsibility and decision for every country on it, on their own. And so now what we do see now is, in, in fact, a Ukrainianization of Finland. The fact that Finland has decided that, you know, having seen what Russia is doing in Ukraine, uh, has decided that the only protection that you know they can actually get effectively is by joining uh, an alliance such as NATO. Uh, I think in general, it's uh, those are ma major tectonic shifts in European and global security uh, system. I think long term it will be positive, but it also you know it points to that solidi solidifying of certain kind of very hard lines. And potentially the uh, kind of the coming up of a new iron uh, iron curtain uh, for Ukrainians' sake, uh, uh, I, I would hope that that curtain, you know, doesn't go through Ukraine. I hope that you know Ukraine is included on the western side of that curtain, whatever happens. Um, so, and the West can and should do whatever they can, whatever you know is within their means to um, assure that. As Maya has, um, you know, uh, um, uh, out pointed out in recent, in kind of our recent episodes, one possibility of doing that is by giving Ukraine the uh, um, a membership plan uh, or the membership status uh, for the uh, the membership in the EU, and so that would be the first step, I think, and then NATO could come later. Right, and with the last few minutes here, I wanted to talk to you guys about. The, about President Putin's Victory Day speech, because a lot of analysts were expecting him to either kind of try to claim some sort of victory or actually declare war. He didn't do either of those things. Um, he instead was saying that a conflict was unavoidable, that the he was calling Ukrainians Nazis and insisting that uh, Kyiv was planning to build nuclear weapons. Now there's no evidence to suggest that that's true. But I wanted to ask you guys what your reactions were when you sort of learned what he was saying in, the, in that speech and what you took away from that. Um, uh, Maya, do you want to start with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it clearly shows that there is some insurmountable weakness for the Russian military. Um, that Putin couldn't use this as an opportunity to really declare with any concrete examples that he was winning in Ukraine. Um, so instead, he sort of fell back on standard propaganda, um, a, a range of sort of false comparisons to uh, Soviets fighting the Nazis and 
um, other sorts of accusations about Ukrainians, which are just basically lies. And so, so it was a classic example of sort of strutting out some of his military equipment, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and and just propaganda. But underneath all of that is the fact that he couldn't really claim something concrete. Um, and I think that's quite telling, actually. I mean, first we had basically this sort of humiliating retreat for him of the Russian military out of Kiev after trying to take it for so so long. And then what he calls like the next phase in the war, which is really just a, a much more limited phase focused on the east and south of Ukraine, which is still not even going that well. Um, and then this speech where he might have used it as an opportunity to escalate, but clearly couldn't even do that. Um, so, you know, as we've talked about, he could sort of go to the the nuclear option if really backed into a corner. Um, it's always been somewhat of an unlikely thing. Uh, but yeah, at, at this point, there is the possibility. I mean, we can't say it's over. He's just clearly not going to do more. He could still do more. But he didn't use the speech as a chance to really sort of say that, you know, he's going to declare war formally. He's going to escalate or or that there are, are clear victories. Um, he desperately needs domestic support. Um, so this is quite telling, I think, that the speech was really much weaker than many analysts thought it, it might be. Pablo? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Maya. And I think there's two things that really, uh, that I found um, really struck me. One was how um, very little there was in terms of substance and how, how very little there was new, really, that he offered. And there was no real change. Uh, but the second thing, and I just cannot get used to it, that was that was some very weird stuff, right? That was, the, I mean, the content of the of the speech was a collection of of paranoias and ramblings. And I, I I know he said that before, but I just cannot get used to the fact that uh, you know many of the arguments that were made were were ostensibly and, and frankly ridiculously false. And and uh, but I thought it was almost a sign of weakness to a great extent that he he had to fall down and, and had to pretty much rely on some very old rehashed sort of arguments and re-justifying the war, re-justifying the invasion, talking about again, comparing, uh, you know, the invasion of, of Ukraine with, with the fight against Nazi Germany and again, comparing Ukraine to, to Nazi Germany, which is obviously patently ridiculous. And to anybody that has any knowledge of history, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, so I thought it was quite telling about that, but particularly because I'm sure people in Russia must be able to tell and must be able to know that there is no truth in that, right? There's nobody, no, nobody even remotely saying can claim there's any truth in, the, in those issues. And it was full of obviously falsehoods and stuff. But I thought it was very, very short on any substance, anything that was really newsworthy in the sense that there wasn't anything new, there wasn't any new proposals. And I just think we saw really somebody that was just, uh, you know, clutching a straws, you know, trying to find again, justifying his own actions, but with any anything, nothing new, no new substance, no new justifications, just rehashing old lies and coming up with some new ones that were, if, if anything, more ridiculous than the previous ones. Hola. Um I think that uh, people, especially the Ukraine, um, had dramatic expectations of May 9th. Uh, in Ukraine, people were actively preparing for the possibility of a nuclear strike on the capital and on the largest cities. Uh, and I'm saying this, you know, knowing that people have actually reviewed, you know, certain 
manuals, you know, how to act and, you know, how to behave in, in, in you know, if a nuclear strike does come. Um, and so on top of that, you know, other expectations included a declaration of the martial uh, law in Russia, which would, uh, you know, allow Putin to um, basically rely on more conscripts uh, to the army. Um, and at the same time, you know, kind of an open declaration of war against Ukraine. Um, I think, uh, in part, the, the reason the reason for um, none of that happening could be uh, the fact that you know those, some of those plans were disclosed ahead of time by the Western intelligence services, which I think again was a very successful move, um, and it's definitely a good a good thing for you know for Ukraine, for the war, for the world. Um, you know, and uh, on the other hand, I think that Putin is reaching the um, the limits of his own propaganda machine. Um, the fact that uh, he is using this very, very kind of central moment uh, not to move ahead, but to having to kind of shore up support for what he is already doing shows that, um, you know, the you know, the, there are problems uh, on the home front uh, for the war effort. Um, uh, just recently, a few days ago, uh, a new study came out from the, uh, it's called Old Russian Center for the Study of Public Opinion. Um, and so kind of they found that the um, uh, trust for the public television or the state-owned television or television in general has fallen over the last two years by 10%. And it's now down to the old-time low of 42%. It's still a lot. So, so 42% of people trust, uh, you know, state-owned television channels and uh, get their news, uh, uh, you know, primarily from those sources. However, the uh, kind of the rise of the internet is also remarkable. It's now at 32%, which has never been as high. So that means that, you know, the, the, um, the propaganda machine is stuttering in Russia because honestly, they cannot deliver any new material. Right, so kind of they cannot back up some of the claims that they're that they're making, uh, even with fake stories, as we know before. Right, there was that kind of the fake story of, uh, you know, Ukrainians crucifying a boy in in the Donetsk region or or something else of that sort. So they cannot produce those dramatic images anymore to keep you know people focused on on their messaging, and so it slowly falls apart. And I think the kind of the, um, you know, some of the things that we that we heard. Uh, in Vladimir Putin's speech, um, basically points to the fact that uh, there is a growing weakness within Russia for the war effort that that uh, Vladimir Putin is spearheading. Right, absolutely. Well, we are out of time, but it's been really great to talk to you guys as always. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the latest developments next week. Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much.